It's good to be together today. We're in uh, Mark 9. Um, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, that would be great. Uh, we are ending our series, uh, Transformed, Not Conformed. Um, next week, we'll be jumping into the book of Colossians, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, so today, uh, we, we end this series talking about the doctrine of hell, uh, the title, um, I don't know how I feel about it now. I felt great 48 hours ago. It's hell is no joke. Um, uh, one reason is I just couldn't come up with a great title. Um, that, was, that was as good as I had. Uh, I was talking with a pastor from another church uh, that preached on the doctrine of hell a while ago, and, and he told me, I didn't even ask him, he told me his title was hell no. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I get it. Um, but, uh, but really, that's kind of, it's kind of the reason for the, the title Hell is No Joke, because uh, we, we use that word so flippantly in, in our culture. Maybe, maybe some of you say, oh, I don't use that word flippantly, but, but it is used in our culture flippantly. Um, we have all kinds of sayings with the word hell in it. We say hot as hell, and that, that kind of, I mean, that I guess makes sense. Um, bored as hell, I don't, I don't know if that one makes sense. Get the hell out of here, what the hell. Hell of a time. Um, I see things like go to hell, um, burn in hell. I was, I was a freshman at, in Bible college, um, and this one guy got really mad at this other guy, and he said, burn in hell to him. And I'm just thinking, you're not going to last long here. Like, and he, he didn't. See, that was his only year at Bible college. Um, uh, the, the saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned which is either a gross underestimation of hell or a really poor view of women. Um, uh, we say to kick the hell out of something, beat the hell out of something. Um, if we based our, our, our doctrine of hell off of funerals, we would assume that everyone goes to heaven. Um, I, I cannot think of a funeral that I've ever been to where it's even been a question if, if the person that died uh, went to heaven. And I get it. It would be uncomfortable. Um, to go to a memorial service, a funeral service, and speculate uh, if the deceased was, was in hell. Um, however, that might be the best thing for every person in the room in that moment. If you were with us uh, when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, the author, the teacher, he makes us think a lot about death, a, a lot about what's coming after death. But if there is no heaven or hell, what is there really to consider? We don't like thinking about hell. Uh, pe people that don't believe in Jesus, people that believe in Jesus, I, I would say neither group probably likes thinking about hell. We avoid thinking about the reality of hell because it, it, it is terrible. It, it, it will be a, a horrible existence. Um, but avoiding terrible realities in life uh, doesn't really do much for us. We, we do that, we, we avoid things, but, but it doesn't help us. If I were to go to the doctor this next week, um, if I had like a, a growth that I found, I go to the doctor, she runs some tests, um, and then goes and, and, and talks with, uh, with another doctor, and, and she says to that other doctor, he has cancer, uh, and cancer's terrible. I'm not gonna tell him though, because uh, that would be horrible news, that, that would ruin that would ruin him to find this out. I want him to be blissfully ignorant. That doctor would not be doing me any favors. 
that, that doctor um, would not be making her decision out of care for me. That doctor um, would probably lose her license to practice medicine at some point. So like cancer, ignoring hell uh, doesn't make it go away. Right? We can believe or not believe in something with all of our might, but it doesn't change truth. It doesn't change reality. We believe that hell is real because God's word tells us it is. And last week I, I talked a little bit about um, how crucial it is as a believer to know that God is good, that no matter what is happening in life, when, I, when you can't make sense of, uh, of life or, or, or what God is doing, that at least you can come back to and say, okay, God, I know you're good. I don't get all this, but, but I know you're good. And, it, and it's like an anchor for our faith that is absolutely crucial. Uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, Anselm, um, he, he, he was basically saying that we should give thanks for what, uh, whatever in the Christian faith that we can wrap our minds around. Whatever we can understand, we should give thanks to God for that. But when it comes to something we don't understand, he said, we should bow our heads in reverent submission. For years, um, the verse uh, Isaiah 55.9 has been really helpful for me in, in recognizing uh, how different God is than me. God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is uh, he's not like us. He is beyond us. His understanding, his wisdom is beyond us. His holiness is beyond us. Everything about him. We, we may not grasp certain things that we read in the Bible or things that happen in life, but we know that we can trust in a God who is good. So before we even get into the meat of, of the sermon, talking about hell, I want to knock a few things out of the way. One would be just a definition, so let's put that on the screen there. Uh, hell, I, I stole this from, or borrowed this from Wayne Grudem, a uh, theologian. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. So a couple observations there. Uh, this is the destination of the wicked. And biblically speaking, this is all of humanity. And you probably don't classify yourself as, as being wicked. Yet uh, compared to God's standard of perfect holiness, we don't even come close. My guess is you haven't murdered someone, or you haven't done something that, that you would uh, classify as, as, as being wicked, something just absolutely atrocious. Um, but the problem is that we set the bar so low for what wickedness is, that, that rejecting God is wickedness according to Scripture. So the only way for the sinner to be saved from hell is through the blood of Jesus. It's by grace and grace alone that we're saved, and the Bible is very very clear that, that we can't enter heaven or, or you could think of it as escape hell based on our own merits, based by living a really good life or even kind of good life. It's only through, through faith in the resurrected Jesus that we're saved. Another thing you'll notice in that definition is uh, it's for eternity. Hell is for eternity. It will last forever. There's no end to hell. So those who are sent to hell will continue to exist there forever. They don't cease to exist at a, after a certain amount of time. They won't be released at any point. There are some Christians that hold to a view that, that, that believes God will send people to hell. Um, they'll, they'll suffer there for a time. And then once God's wrath has been satisfied, once it takes its full effect, then they'll be annihilated, that they will then cease to exist. And, and this is a belief that um, more and more you hear in the Christian church. So one argument that someone um, might use 
uh, from Scripture is they look at uh, how Paul uses the word destruction when he talks about uh, the, the destination of, of people who do not trust in Jesus. Um, so a person that believes in, in, in annihilationism takes that to mean that, uh, that they will cease to exist. And destruction certainly could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily imply that they will cease to exist. It could also be used to refer to the harmful and destructive effects of the judgment on those who do not trust in Jesus. And there are plenty of verses in the Bible that speak to the eternity of hell. Uh, in Revelation, there's, there's the picture of uh, those in hell and, and smoke going up. It says forever and ever in our passage today. Um, Jesus describes it as unquenchable fire. He says, where, where the worm will not die. Um, another argument is, uh, so you ask, how, how could someone be punished for all of eternity when, when, they, when they commit sin in this finite time here on earth? That, that it's, it's out of balance, it's unfair. And I think, um, I think this argument probably reveals um, how, how lightly we view sin. It's pretty arrogant of us in our sin-marred state to think that we understand sin better than God, who's perfectly holy, that, that we understand better how God should rightly deal with sin. Uh, David Kingdon wrote this. He said, Sin against the Creator is heinous to, agree, uh, to a degree utterly, utterly beyond our sin-warped imagination's ability to conceive of it. Who would have the audacity to suggest to God what the punishment should be. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, belong to our God. And then verse, verse 2 tells us why they're shouting it. It says, for his judgments are true and just. So the people in heaven, they cry out as they see God's judgment. They cry out, hallelujah, that, that you are just, that you are wise, that you're powerful, that you're glorious in your judgment. I've never noticed that before in Revelation, that, that in our redeemed state, we will see the, the judgment of God and recognize how just that he is. Uh, another um, belief about hell that I'm sure you're uh, familiar with is purgatory. And I know that this is, uh, comes from, from Catholic um, beliefs, um, but I've met Christians that, that have this belief somehow, whether it's in their, in their background growing up or somehow it's, it's, uh, it's come into what they believe. Um, and uh, purgatory, if you don't know what it is, is where a believer uh, goes to be further purified um, through suffering. And, and then once they've suffered fully, they, they've paid um, for, uh, for their sin, the, the suffering is, is given to God, and then they're ready to go to heaven. So two big problems with that. One, that would mean that Christ's death was not sufficient on the cross to pay for your sin. And the second is it's not in the Bible. Uh, the support that comes from that is, is from a, an apocryphal book, so a book not in the Bible. It is part of the Catholic Bible, Second Maccabees. There are a handful of, of attempts to connect purgatory to Scripture, but they're a massive, massive stretch. So we, we reject purgatory. Uh, another um, belief that, that uh, has seeped into Christianity is universalism. 
Um, so this is the, the idea, the belief that uh, eventually all people will be saved. Um, that, that all people will be saved through Christ. That even, if, even those who do not uh, accept Christ as their Savior in this life, that they will have another chance to come to repent. And I get it why we would want to believe that. A hell is terrible. It, it is worse than we can even imagine, right? There, there are terrible places on this planet. There are horrible things going on right now that, that we could, I don't even know if we can imagine them, we can conceive of them, and hell is worse, right? It, those are a drop in a bucket compared to hell. Hell is a place of unending, unending suffering. Jesus describes it in multiple places as, as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell will be filled with, with pain and anguish and remorse and misery and regret. So I, I would love it if, if I got to heaven and found out I was totally wrong about this and, and that, that, that somehow everyone does get to be saved, but the Bible does not speak that way. And, and if we understood hell rightly, we would not wish it on anyone. So before, another thing before we get to the passage, I want to set the story, the context, um, before we talk about hell. And you know the story. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, he created everything. Right? He, he created everything out of nothing. The universe, the, the solar systems, the, the stars, our moon, the sun, the, the seas, the land. Every, every plant, every animal, and we're told that the apex of creation is humanity. And God says that creation was good. So we're told that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and their relationship with God was, was perfect. It was harmonious. It says, and this is crazy to me, but it says that they walked in the garden and talked with God. Nothing was in between them. He was their creator. They were the creation and he gave them instructions. He told them, this is, how, this is how it works. This is what I want you to do. I want you to care for my creation. I want you to subdue it. I want you to rule over it. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And it made sense. He was the designer, right? He knew how he made things to work. So he gave them the instructions. And like I said, they walked around the garden with him. He gave them one instruction. He, he said, the, the fruit of these trees are for you to eat, all but this one tree. Right? I think Christianity gets this rap for being uh, really restrictive, and yet the first thing we see God do is say, hey, you have freedom to eat from everything minus one, minus the tree the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story. Adam and Eve, they took that fruit eventually. And they ate it, and they chose to, to disobey God. They decided that they knew what was better than, than what God knew. And the relationship was broken, and sin entered the world and impacted all of creation. And, and, and they, they knew they blew it. Right? They hid from God. And, and my, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that they understood way better than we do the impact of sin. They hid from God they realized they were naked. They tried to cover themselves up with some leaves, but that wasn't good enough. So God, he, he made them clothing out of animal skin, and it was the sign, it was the first pointing to that we needed a sacrifice 
to be made for our sin. There, there needed to be blood shed to atone for our sin. It's a reminder that humanity is incapable of taking care of sin. Adam and Eve needed God to intervene, and so do you and I. So God told them, he, he, he told them the impact, that the curses came, but he also said that there would be one who would come and would save. And the human population increased, and the problems increased. Sin was, was rampant. People couldn't be good, and people couldn't fix their problem with sin. But in that, God chose a people to be his own. He, he chose a nation, and, and it's not because they were special. God just made them his people. It wasn't because they'd done something good. He, he just chose them as his own people. And there, they were blessed by God. But he told them that you're not blessed by me to hoard it to yourself. You're blessed so that you'd be a blessing to every other nation on earth. They were to be a conduit of, of God's love and blessing. He made a covenant with them that, that they would obey him and he would bless them. And, and when they disobeyed, he would curse them, that they would suffer the consequences of their sin. He, he took his tent, right, the, the tabernacle, which was a, it was a portable temple, and he set it up right in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. Right? God, holy God, made a way to be among his sinful people. He said to them, I'm your God, and you're my people. But they continually betrayed him. They rebelled against him. They loved sin rather than loving God. And there was this cycle of, of saying, God, we're going to follow you. And for a time, they would. And then they'd rebel, and they would suffer the consequences of their sin. But then they would come back begging for mercy, and, and God would give it to them eventually. And then for a while, they'd be on their best behavior, but then they'd go back again to trusting themselves. And this just happened over and over again. God had given them priests, right? Priests. He, he gave them a mediator between the people and, and God. And he gave the priests instructions on, on sacrifices to pay for sin, to cover for their sin, to atone. Even though they rebelled, God made a way for them to be in relationship with him. He made a way for their sin to be paid for, a very bloody way. Throughout the history of Israel, they complained. God's people complained over and over again about all kinds of things. Kind of like a kid looking around at their friends and what they have. Israel at some point said, we want to be like the nations. We want a king. He warned them what a human king would be like. And they said, we want one anyway. So he gave them a king. He gave them King Saul. And Saul started out okay. He was, he was decently humble at first. He looked to God. He, he followed his instructions for a bit, but then he rebelled. He didn't trust God. He took matters into his own hands. So God removed the kingdom from him and gave it to David. And there's a lot that we could share about David, but the most significant piece that I want to share today is that God made another covenant with David. He, he promised that there would be a forever king that would come from his family line. And in this covenant, he was going to fulfill it, even though the nation wouldn't be obedient to God. This king would be their savior that God had promised way back to Adam and Eve. And unlike every king that Israel had, even the best of their kings, this king would love God, would be obedient to God, and he would love God's people. 
This king would be the savior that they so desperately need. And we know Jesus is that king from the family line of David. He came in the flesh. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He was both fully God and fully man, and he lived without sin. He, he did what no one had ever done before or since. He did what Adam and Eve under uh, the perfect circumstances were unable to do. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, and his obedience made him the one who could be the sacrifice once and for all for sin. Scripture calls him the Lamb of God, the spotless sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Not only was he our sacrifice, but he was our high priest. He's uniquely qualified to be the mediator between God and man because he's fully God and fully man. So on that cross, Jesus took on the wrath of God. Jesus took on God's just punishment for our sin. We want justice all the time. We hear a news story about someone that gets away with something and we cry out that we want justice or something happens to us and we want that person caught. We want them punished. But for ourselves, we want grace and mercy and Jesus alone offers grace and mercy because he took our place. He received the just punishment for our sin. He took on the wrath that we deserved. He died a criminal's death on the cross. He was buried. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered death and he offered salvation to all who would believe. Anyone who would trust in Jesus as their savior from their rebellion against God is saved by grace. And Christians, we know God loves us because of the cross. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or, or the, 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 the wrath-satisfying atonement for our sins. So Jesus rose. He spent 40 days with his followers preparing to launch the most important startup ever, his church. He tasked them to tell the world the good news, to make disciples of him, to teach them everything that he had taught them, that people don't have to continue to be slaves to sin, trapped in sin, that people could put their trust in Jesus because Jesus, God himself, paid the price for their sin so that they don't have to, that, that, that we can exchange our, our sin our, our wickedness for his righteousness. All we have to do is trust in Jesus as the Lord of our life, and we have eternal life in him. And God is patiently waiting for people to repent. And one day Jesus will come back. We're told that he'll gather his people to him to live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who do not trust will be in hell. And I think it's critical that we speak the gospel to ourselves when we think about hell. That by choosing not to believe in Jesus, there is not eternal life. There is eternal condemnation. One pastor said this, People often feel that hell is some great blemish on God's love. The Bible presents it as the opposite. Hell magnifies for us the love of God by showing us how far God went and how much he went through to save us. Sometimes people assume that, that hell is just talked about in the Old Testament 
People see the Old Testament God is, is kind of cranky and grumpy and mean and that Jesus comes and he's the nice one and of course he doesn't talk about hell. But when you add up the verses that Jesus talked about hell compared to the verses where he talks about heaven, he talked more about hell than heaven. So let's look at some of those right now. Mark 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There's nothing of greater significance than what you believe about Jesus. Is he Lord or not? Is Jesus the only way to be made right with God? Is he the only way to be reconciled or not? When the Bible speaks about belief in Jesus, it isn't just this intellectual thing. It's a holistic belief. The impact of belief in Christ, it should be completely systemic. Your allegiance will permeate every part of you as you mature in Christ. When Jesus gives this warning about belief, belief isn't some flippant thought. He calls not believing in him sin. The, the warning is don't lead someone in to sin by them not believing in me, by not trusting that Jesus is Lord, that, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who saves. Don't lead someone to believe that they're fine without Jesus. That will be destruction for them. He says, rather than doing that, rather than leading someone to believe that, it'd be better for you to have this giant stone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea rather than suffer the punishment for leading someone to believe that way. It is, it is good that we think about the consequences of someone not believing in Jesus. If you do believe in Jesus... Do you wrestle with what that means for those who don't? Right, do, you, do you think about coworkers, neighbors, friends, family members who don't know Christ? Do you, do you think about them staring down hell if they reject Jesus? Obviously, knowing someone that is trusted in Christ, that brings us great joy that forever they will be with Jesus. And there's reason to celebrate that. It's good for us to think about those who do not know Jesus and what that means for them, and it should impact us. It makes sense that there are moments as Christians where we're just overwhelmed by someone that you love that does not know Jesus, that continues to reject Jesus. And I know as Christians, we're driven by our hope in Christ. And I know it's not enjoyable to think about hell, but we need to recognize it, and it ought to motivate us. Not only is it good to think through heaven and hell for others, but it's obviously pretty important for ourselves that we realize this life, how we live, impacts eternity, eternity, specifically what we believe in Jesus. Impacts whether we'll be with him forever in heaven or forever in hell separated from God. Verse 43, he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. 
to the unquenchable fire. And not having a full use of your body is frustrating. We've all experienced that before. You, you get injured or you have a surgery and, 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 and your arm just doesn't work right or your foot or, or whatever it is. We also know that, that if we live to be to a ripe old age, that our body will deteriorate, that, that, that things will not work as well. We expect that, that, that our eyes won't work as well, that our hearing, we won't be able to hear as much, that maybe we'll get arthritis in our hands or in our joints, that stairs uh, will be problematic for us. And, and this isn't exciting news, but we expect it. But no one would choose those losses. And yet Jesus says, it would be better for you to just lop that hand right off if that hand is going to cause you to sin. Right? If your hand is going to lead you away from Jesus, you'd be better to just get rid of it and figure out life with just one hand. Figure out how to dress yourself every day with just one hand. Figure out how to do your job with, with just one hand. Or, or, or if it means you lose your job and you end up working some horrible job that you hate, that would still be better than, than going to hell. Right? There's a principle here that, that sin is not to be taken lightly that we are to deal radically with sin. He describes hell with just two words as unquenchable fire. And those are scary words. It made me think about uh, the, the fires we had in the gorge. I think I have a picture here, possibly, yes. So that is, um, I believe that's the golf course at Bonneville, right? And uh, the fire's going on. This is day of. And these guys are just golfing like, like it's nothing. Um, and, and we know that, that that fire was horrible. I mean, it, it was crazy that a spark was able to get all the way to our side and cause a fire over here, and yet that fire was quenchable. It took a long, long time. It took a, a lot of, of water, of man hours, but that fire ended, and, and, and Jesus said that, that the fire of hell is unquenchable. Verse 45, he says, If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown in hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in hell. If your foot, if your eye, if whatever part of you is a tool used to rebel against God, just get rid of it. You do not want to be in hell. Verse 48, this is his description of hell. He says, where the worm does not die. And fire, the fire is not quenched. The fire will not be quenched. There will be no hope of suffering coming into an end because of death. Suffering in hell will be eternal. Hell is described at times in Scripture as, as darkness. Jesus says that they'll be thrown into outer darkness, which is peculiar since there's so much talk of fire as well. But I suspect that it's described that way because of the absence of God's presence, God who is light. People on earth that do not trust God, at least in this life, they get to experience God's grace. They get to experience God's grace even in just being alive, and, and there are too many other ways to count. But, but in hell, there will be no experience of, of God's grace. It's argued that the worst part of the cross for Jesus wasn't the nails, it wasn't the crown of thorns, it wasn't the beating beforehand. It was God forsaking him. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He missed God's presence so, so much. 
and in hell, God's presence will not be known at all. As we wrap up here, there's, uh, there's a question of, do we choose to go to hell? Does a person choose to go to hell, or does God send us to hell? And, and in some ways, it's both. Um, by nature, we tell God, get out. Get out of our lives, that, that we don't want him. And eventually, he'll say, okay. One pastor wrote that hell is the culmination of us yelling at God to get out. And he lets us have that for eternity. If you spend your life telling God you don't want him to be Lord, you don't want him to be in your life, he will grant that desire. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question, or is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to leave you alone? Alas, I'm afraid that that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. So in a way, we do choose to go to hell. In another sense, though, God very much sends people to hell. Just like someone who is thrown in jail, God is perfect in his justice. And he sends those who reject him to hell forever. If a person decides, like Adam and Eve, that they know better than God, how, how to live life, how to ch- uh, and they choose to reject Jesus who came for them so that they could be saved, then God will send them to hell. Hell is real. Hell is terrible. Hell hell truly is. It is no joke. And yet Jesus has made a way. We have real hope in Christ that we would not need to be separated from him forever, that we would not need to suffer. Jesus suffered for us. He took on our sins so that we could be made right with him. So what do we do with the doctrine of hell? Here's a few thoughts. The first thing is, I just want you to ask yourself, based on what scripture says, right, based on the story of the gospel, that Jesus came, that he died for your sins, and he's the only way to be saved from sin, based on that, will you be spending eternity in heaven or hell? Secondly, I encourage you, and this is kind of follow-up from last week, to cling to Jesus no matter what, no matter what this life throws at you. If you're in Jesus, there is much to rejoice over. No, no matter what life throws at you, it's not even worth comparing, we're told in Scripture. It's not even worth comparing to the glory that we will see and experience with God forever in eternity. Third thing, as we look around and see injustice, we can trust that God is just and that he will make everything right. And lastly, this should motivate our gospel sharing. If we know Jesus, we ought to feel godly sorrow for those who do not know Jesus, those who've rejected Jesus. Paul says this, and it's it's amazing what he says in Romans 9, 2 and 3. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I wish that I could say that I'd be willing to trade someone else, that, that if someone else could go to heaven, that, that I would take their place in hell. I'm not there yet. But Paul has a heart for everyone who doesn't know Jesus to trust in him. If you don't find yourself looking for chances to share the gospel, I wonder, have we forgotten how great it is to be saved from our sin? 
how, how great it is to know God, to have eternal life, which, which starts now and lasts forever. How, how gracious God is to provide a way for us to be in his presence forever and to not be separated forever from him in hell. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, I thank you that you've been completely upfront with us, that, that hell is real, Lord, and, and, and I'm sure that the descriptions of hell, while they help us to understand, it is much worse than we can, we can even conceive of. Lord, I, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, that, that you offer grace and mercy freely to all of us, no, no matter what we've done, even if we had murdered someone. You offer us forgiveness because you took our place. God, we praise you for that, Lord. Would you help us that know you to understand what we're saved from? Would you help us that know you to remember how great it is to be forgiven? Lord, we've been forgiven much. Would we love much? Would we love you and love people for your glory, God. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room that, that has not decided to follow you. Lord, I, I pray that you'd open their eyes, that whatever it is that holds them back from you, that, that today even, that they would trust in you, Jesus, as their Savior. Lord, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.